The story of Beauty and the Beast goes all the way back to a fairy tale written in 1756 by Jean-Marie Le Prince de Beaumont. But the story, as we know it, focusing on a prince who is magically transformed into a monster and the young woman Belle he imprisons in his castle leapt into popular contemporary consciousness in 1991 with the Disney movie of the same name. With music by Alan Menken, lyrics by Howard Ashman and Tim Rice. The film was later adapted into a smash hit Broadway musical. That was in 1993. And last night, that opened at the Gosh Energy Theatre where it will run through until January the 8th. Bill Hughes was there and he's with me in studio this evening. Um, we get into the, the, the production and, and what it's all about uh, in, in a moment, Bill. But I mean, the Beauty, Beauty and the Beast, it's, this is the, the classic fairy tale, really, isn't it? You know, yeah. La Belle et la Bette and uh, they couldn't have got a better Belle and they couldn't have got a better Bette because just the atmosphere in the building last night in, in the board, gosh, um, it's so lavish. It's so huge. It's like they had the money and they spent it and you mm. see every cent of it on stage. This is the production that was in the Palladium and it literally got up into trucks and has moved to Dublin. So you're getting the full belt, you're getting the same cast, you're getting the same costumes, the set, everything. Yeah. So it's the full West End experience in the board gosh. And it, it, the, 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 what we're getting on stage is in fact itself an adaptation of the animated movie from Disney and that's not usual rooted. No, it doesn't normally go from film to stage, does well, it? Well, it was one of the first. Yeah. That, that, so in 1991 when the animated film was released, mm. the songs that were in that were written by Alan Menken and Howard Ashman. So it was when they decided and, and, and it, it, it was a kind of a circuitous route because when Walt Disney died, uh, he kind of left a void in Disney and they had a terrible two decades, the 70s mm. and the 80s were disasters for Disney and they lost their magic touch and they brought in Michael Eisner to try and uh, rebuild and he came from a theatrical background. Uh, he had no animation experience but they seemed to sense that they needed to bring mm. something theatrical to the organisation and he surrounded himself with key people from the theatre and said, you know, we, we've got to try to instil some theatricality into what we're doing. Ah, right, that's interesting. So you would you would argue that in the original animated version there was an innate theatricality which made the, the move then from film to stage possibly not as, as awkward a one as it might have been. Well, what was really funny was when the movie came out in 1991, the animated film with the songs by the two lads, Frank Rich, the real nasty reviewer, the hatchet man of mm. the New York Times said, and the best musical of the year is uh, Beauty and the Beast. And it wasn't a musical. And he said, it's better than anything that's been on Broadway. So that kind of told the guys, OK, we better bring this to Broadway yeah. if that's because... So he it was, was the, the, as a critic, he was suggesting, would you get this onto Broadway, yeah, please, absolutely. off the screen, onto the stage? Yeah, but the sad thing was, Howard Ashman was dying of AIDS at the time. He had been brought in by Eisner and he did The Little Mermaid with Alan Menken mm. and that started to create a, a buzz for Disney yet again and on the back of that having won the Oscars for Best Music, Best Song they said let's do Beauty and the Beast and Alan Menken was doing it and on the way home from the Oscar ceremony having picked up the Oscars for The Little Mermaid he, Howard Ashman told Alan Menken by the way 
I've been diagnosed. And in those days, AIDS was a death sentence, which it no longer is. Mm. But in those days, it was. And uh, he didn't live to see the release of the animated film. He had no idea of the success of it and he had no idea that it went to Broadway. And it was only when they were bringing it to Broadway, they needed more songs. And that's when Mencken brought in Tim Rice to replace Howard Ashman. He needed another partner at that point. And Mm. I suppose tomorrow being World AIDS Day, it's kind of a poignancy about that in and around Ashman. And I'm sure lots of people will be remembering him and and other people, of course, uh, tomorrow as well. Right. Well, let's uh, talk a little bit about this production then. (laughs) When you came into studio to me, you held up, you opened the the, the middle page, I guess it is, of the the programme from last night. And what a sight. It's like a kaleidoscopic view. Uh, But we're in Busby Berkeley territory here, really, aren't we? Well, even... uh, the back projections in the middle of this particular number of Be Our Guest, they uh, project what Berkeley would have done, which mm. is that kaleidoscopic effect. Yeah. So you have that going on in the background, but you also have it going on on the stage. And then you have all the ostrich feathers coming out in circles. So then you have the circles running as well. So your eyes are just dazzled and you're dazzled by the quality yeah. of the singing, the quality of the music, and the visuals are just kind of overwhelming. So that when that number finished last night, the roar was reminiscent of the roar <laughs> at the end of Riverdance in the Eurovision. Oh, there you it go. was that kind of the audience just as one roared their right, approval. Yeah, they, they roared their approval. Yeah. Well, uh, I suppose when you think of the animated film, it's what they do, what they did in the animated film. Obviously, you've got beauty and you've got the beast and that's mm. the central part of the story. But the real trick of the animated film was bringing the teapot to life, bringing yeah. the candlestick to yeah. life, bringing these house, these furniture items within the house are characters. The clock, the chest of drawers, yeah. like they're all fantastic characters. And Lumiere, the, the candelabra, mm. and he is so <laughs> good. Even the names are great. Yeah, aren't they? Lumiere is just fantastic. And uh, he, he just has, Gavin Lee plays him. Uh, in this production and he, he's he's just he brings so much his his mm. hands light up you know he's got the, the candelabras in his hands and they're obviously battery operated but whatever it is any kid but the kid in all of us sees that as kind of magic and it's a magic trick and he just does it throughout and uh, then his sidekick Cogsworth who's the clock played by Nigel Richards the two of them it's such a double act of yeah. real proper slapstick comedy and fun and there's a poignancy because as the beast's time is running out where his curse is going to be permanent they're they're affected by the curse as well and that means that they're not going to be able to return to being human either so they all have skin in the game they all have skin (laughs) in the game and if they want their lives back their lives they have Mm. to help him fall in love and uh, so Belle is the perfect yeah. girl. And know. Belle is the perfect girl for that. But another one of the pieces of furniture, pieces of household items that come to light is, of, or come to life rather, is of course Mrs. Potts. And on forget, let's listen to Angela Lansbury, the wonderful late Angela Lansbury as Mrs. Potts. Ever just the same Ever a Just as sure as the sun will rise Tale as old as time Tune as old as song 
bittersweet and strange Finding you can change Learning you were wrong Certain as the sun Rising in the east Tame as old as time Song as old as rhyme Beauty and the beast As old as time, song as old as rhyme, beauty and the beast. After the cupboard with you now, Chip, it's past your bedtime. Good night, love. <laughs> uh, it's just gorgeous and that's Angela Lansbury uh, from the film version of Beauty and the Beast uh, playing Mrs Potts who plays Mrs Potts in the Mrs. board Gosh- uh, Sa- uh, Sam Bailey who won X Factor and hmm. she does it so beautifully she completely inhabits the part of a teapot you know she's so good <laughs> and when I was sitting in the theatre last night looking at the stage and I was going that can't be Sam Bailey because she's so believable as a teapot and I didn't know Sam Bailey could Mm. act and could dance and could move like this but then when she started to sing I went oh my god it is Sam and she is fantastic completely believable because kind of Angela Lansbury sets quite a high bar doesn't she well when we take our seats in the theatre the first voice we hear is Angela Lansbury Uh. Angela Lansbury tells us the prologue before the show starts, it's Angela Lansbury's voice they've used. And that's really poignant Of course, as well. I'm tearing up even as you're saying it, just thinking of <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. And, and, you know, when they were opening in London, um, the, the, the cast were getting ready to go on and they play this prologue mm-hmm. to get everybody in. And the word had just come out that Angela Lansbury had oh. died. So they, they all oh, went on stage very, in bits. Yeah, they were in imagine. bits. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. beautiful. So um, obviously we need to talk about Belle and the Beast as well. Who's playing Belle? Belle, Courtney Stapleton. Never heard of her, but by God, can she belt. And in the first scene, I thought, oh no, we're in trouble. I didn't think. Mm. But that's, that's the nature of the, the show. She's just fitting into the part. But by the time she comes to sing and by the time she gets to use her pipes, the girl has a yeah. voice from heaven. It's, yeah. it's huge. She has a big, dramatic uh, belter of a voice and she's given the song so she's able to, to, to go at yeah. them. And then her... And the beast. Shaq Taylor. Never heard of him. By God, he's good. He's got such a physicality to him. He uh, is looking like this awful beast, but he has the movements of an ape. And so he's able to swing around. The, the, uh, he jumps up on chairs. He jumps up on tables. He does t- turns. Mm. and He's got this physicality about him. He's got this huge body. Well, that's interesting because, if you see, again, I'm thinking of the animated version where yeah. there's a kind of a lumbering quality to the beast in yeah. that, you know, and he barely moves. But that, that physicality oh, is brought into that. Yeah. Must, that must make him a more frightening type of beast yeah. than just the guy yeah. who lumbers around the oh. stage waiting to be kissed. And they have a sound effect in his voice that when he roars it's a roar that literally resonates throughout the theatre you know so that's where I think some uh, very young children wouldn't uh, wouldn't be able to uh, cope with that Yeah yeah, you were saying that um, I think Borgosh have suggested don't bring under threes but you would say four and above really Yeah four and above 
above is, is perfect. Yeah, you know, and, and, and they need to know there's a big transformation or yeah, whatever. They, well, they need to know the story and yeah. I'm sure they do. Nobody's going to walk into that theatre not knowing the story of Beauty and the Beast. Well, you if know. you bring in kids, you certainly want to, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> want yeah. to have told them that. Under yeah. sixes, actually, I see. Is it under sixes that the Board Gosh Energy have said? Yeah, Board Gosh Energy are saying under sixes. Yeah. Uh, in fact, they're going a little bit higher uh, ah, in terms of oh, very good. in terms of who they're suggesting might yeah. go to it. Um, but you've you've touched on it, Bill, already. That in fact, it is the big ensemble. It's it's the pieces of furniture oh, yeah. going moving around the stage and, as people that that are important here. Yes, Samantha Bingley is the chest of drawers. She is fantastic. But um, another character not to be forgotten is Gaston. Gaston oh, yes. is is the woodsman who thinks that that Belle is his, and he just assumes, and he is the embodiment of toxic masculinity. Just he is, and he's got muscles on his muscles, which also have muscles on them. It's ridiculous. It's over. It's played so brilliantly, mm. but he is so vain, and and that whole character, so that he becomes such a, a laughable joke, and uh, he's he he's fits into the into the action because you just don't want him to succeed. Yeah. You want Bill to succeed. <laughs> yeah. And you're kind of toying with how is the beast, beast going to turn, but she tames the beast. She ah, does. Yeah, yeah. Well, it you couldn't yeah. have it on at Christmas if she didn't, no, if she didn't no, no, tame no. the beast. No. Um, is, have you any caveats in your, in your uh, recommendations any, uh, here, Bill? I, I, uh, it's long, uh, mm. but it's worth it because they just keep finding ways to dazzle you. And just when you think, you know, what was that old line? Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the ocean, you know, <laughs> how comes a shark? Yeah. Well, just when you're thinking, mm, this, this is, is starting cozy. to drag the next yeah, thing, it turns right off. around yeah. and you just, you just can't believe the waves of, of, uh, talent coming from the stage into the audience and then the waves of love coming from the audience back to the stage. Right. The whole thing is, is just embracing. All right, so you're, you're pretty much behind this one but you'd mm-hmm. be following along the production company's advice that children under six maybe hold off on the younger ones. The length would be an, an issue for those for yeah. children of that yeah. younger age as well. Mm-hmm. I suppose we should finish up with the the one that made them all roar last night be oh, our yeah. guest. Now this is from, um, this is with Gary Beach as Lumiere, Beth Fowler Mrs. Potts, Heath Lamberts as Gogsworth, Stacey Logan as Plumet, and, and Brian uh, Press as Chip. Um, I think it's the original. Is it? No, it's the, the original Broadway, original yeah. Broadway production that yeah. we're that we're going to hear uh, in this. But it gives you a real sense of just the fun and the ensemble play. Oh, yeah. uh, we'll listen to a bit of it. Thanks for coming into this evening, Thanks, Bill. John. They can sing, they can dance. After all, this, this is France, and the dinner here is never second best. Go on and fill your men. Take glass and then you'll be our guest. We are guest. Be our guest. Beef ragout, cheese souffle, pie and pudding au flambe. We'll prepare and serve with flair a culinary cabaret. You're alone and you're scared, but the banquet's all prepared. No one's gloomy or complaining while the flat is entertaining. Oh, I do tricks with my fellow candlesticks. And it's all in perfect It's fun dining, we suggest. Be our guest, be our guest, be our guest. Yeah, 
Yes, one of the big numbers from Beauty and the Beast and as Bill Hughes said, they've jumped and roared when they heard the the version that is currently on at the Borgosh Energy Theatre. That was the original Broadway production that we were listening to there. But Bill Hughes talking to us about Beauty and the Beast now running at the Borgosh Energy Theatre. It's there through the Christmas period until January the 8th. The Last of the Light is a singular collection of memoir, short stories, poetry and photographs by West Clare native Marco Rian, a collection that Mark describes as a kind of document of identity. Mark joins us now to take us on a verbal tour of the Loophead uh, Peninsula. Uh, and, and that, I think, Mark, is in some ways what you do in The Last of the Light. Uh, really, it's rooted in such a sense of, of place. Growing up in and around that Loophead area, has, it, were you always aware of that particular magic? How quickly did you become attuned to it? Uh, thanks, Sean, for having me on. Um, yeah, I, I, I was aware of it uh, in my own area. I suppose Kilkee is uh, where I'm uh, mm. born and raised, and it's got a lot of natural beauty and our famous Pollocos and the Duggarna Reef, you know. And um, it was only later, I think, when I emigrated uh, to London in those nasty black 80s uh, for a few years, and um, I returned, and I had a couple of brothers that were fishing, they were on trawlers in local ports, you know, Carrigaholt, small fishing mm. ports, Carrigaholt and Kilbaha. And uh, they they intensified my experience mm. of the Loophead Peninsula, really. They, they knew it a lot better and they knew the back roads and by roads and fishing spots that were out of the way. And um, yeah, so they, one brother in particular, Emmett uh, Hopper, is famously known as uh, locally, uh, would have really enriched my knowledge and my experience of the Loophead Peninsula and uh, it just set my imagination and my love of the place I suppose even deeper and you know Yeah and and, and the, the book is dedicated to Emmett um, to Hopper in, it is. in fact um, Yeah 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 um, I began writing it uh, 10 years ago really uh, uh, more than 10 years ago when he was alive you know but um, he 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 struggled with um, mental illness, uh, bipolar disorder, you know, on and off. And, um, uh, you know, unfortunately lost that fight. And um, 10 years later now, I uh, I got the collection together, you know, mm. and uh, decided to, well, he was such an influence on the book itself mm. and on my love of the area and my knowledge of the area that I, I dedicated it to him. Yeah. But the book also kind of charts, as I was doing it, it began to chart... Uh, a kind of a submerged narrative, as I call it, in the book of, of my own processing uh, that grief of, yeah. of his loss, and you know, it, it uh, chronicles, I suppose, the the importance of brotherhood and what that our brotherhood was at that time as well. Uh, it's another strand yeah. of the book, uh, Sean. Yeah, it's a very important strand of the book that that brotherhood and and the way in which uh, brothers can uh, interact with each other, uh, in fact. But um, one thing that did, uh, just before we move off, Emmett, what <laughs> is the hopper? A, is it a yeah. reference to the sea or a reference to boats in some way? Uh, it, it was actually our mother that named him. <laughs> he was so he was so, such a he was just a big, larger than life character. Mm-hmm. Always it seems, even as an infant. But uh, it was from hopping up and down in the playpen back in those days the play couldn't contain him so even then she recognised his his lust for life you know and uh, yeah so he was hoppy at home and uh, he became hopper I suppose uh, in a 
uh, as he got older, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a great nickname. And funny enough, even though it might have come to him in childhood, it seems something that, that yeah. is suitable as an adult nickname as well. And possibly yeah, yeah. He, he fitted that he fitted that aspect of it. Yeah. But you, you've mentioned about fishing, which is so much part of you uh, and yeah. Emmett's life. And in fact, your, your brother's yeah. uh, so much part of, in fact, you talk about it at one point, it almost as if it's sewn into the lining of our souls. That's uh, right. On, on loop head. Yeah. Uh, what kind of, what kind of opportunities is, did did fishing give to you in terms of the writing of the book, Mark? Yeah, well, I think we grew up as a very outdoors uh, family, a large family, eight boys and two girls uh, survived, you know. And um, so uh, my dad would have been a big fisherman in rivers and uh, hunting. So we grew up with all that outdoor activity and it was fantastic. It was very enriching. Um but I think I was always the observer more so than the participant. I love the the the, the settings and the scenes and mm. the darkness and the waiting for ducks to come in if we're night flighting, you know, hunkering down in among the rushes and the half half moonlight waiting for teal or willer uh, uh, widgeon or mallard to come in off the sea, you know. Um, yeah, so those were magnificent yeah. uh, food for me as a. I suppose, uh, an aspiring writer, a poet at that age, you know. And uh, there's quite definitely a poetic, I mean, the, the the book is in prose, but there's a kind of a poetic feel to, and, and poems uh, within certain sections. Of, yeah. There's a very poetic feel even to the to the prose. I referred yeah. to that it's made up of night notes, memory, short stories and images. Yeah. Night notes, I was interested, I think it's in your, in your introduction or in your preface that you talk about the night notes, the hours for putting down work words are yeah. late, late in the evening for you, are they? Yeah, well, I think the, the whole tone of this particular book would have been light and shadow. I played a lot with that. I, I used to call it shadow stitching in a way. Um, and it's called The Last of the Lights, we'll say, where the peninsula, Loophead Peninsula, we get the last of the light of Europe mm. falling into the Atlantic. But I'm also, in a way, collecting the last of the light of of, uh, of Hopper, my brother, you know, in it, in some of the stories. And um, he certainly would have influenced a lot of the stories and a lot of the characters and a lot of my love for mm. the places that are mentioned in it. I would have been introduced uh, to those places first by him, you know. So I'm collecting the last of his light as well. But um, yeah, light and shade go through it a lot. And the sea uh, and the fact that the peninsula is based uh, uh, on so much water. We have the Atlantic hugely in front of us and the Shannon Estuary on the other side of this little salt-bitten finger of land sticking out. And yeah. we're, we're, we're surrounded by light and we get magnificent uh, light in October, November. Uh, you know, uh, it just blows me away and uh, I'm delighted to be living here and I'm delighted to be writing about it. And in a way, I, I kind of describe this book as my identity documents, but so many others in West Clare have said to me, you're speaking for us as well. This is our story, our yes. area where we're, our saltiness and our lilting, you know, our, our, our musicality in the way we speak and the characters. I try to infuse the book sure. with all of that and I hope I did. Yeah, maybe if you read a section, people will get a sense of the poetic nature of some of the prose, certainly for me. Um, this, would you give us a bit of context for this? I mean, the title or the, the headline or the first yeah. sentence 5.30am, dead quiet summer morning kind of tells us what we need to know. Yeah. But where does this fit into the overall um, shape and form of the book, Mark? Uh, it, it, it's uh, The book can be read, each individual piece can be read singly as a standalone uh, unit, we'll say. But 
it's kind of written like music. I described it before as it's written like music that where you introduce a theme and it a motif and it plays off and it returns again. Mm. And I've tried to kind of um, write it in that way uh, that it's got a, a completeness and it's got an arc, uh, you know, a narrative arc in a way. But one of the submerged narratives would be uh, an immigrant returning, myself returning from London after spending uh, six or seven years there. And uh, so this is the scene where I've returned as such, or the, the narrator has returned. Yeah. Uh, so it's called In Midair. And um, I think it speaks for itself, hopefully, uh, the, the, where the person is at, the narrator is at at that, this point. So that's the context, John, I hope. Okay, let's hear it so. Okay, In Midair. 5.30am, dead quiet, summer morning. Not another soul about. Standing on a reef of dark sandstone that juts into the Atlantic, three deep pools in it, a man is going for a swim. Listening closely, he hears the rock seeding, tiny barnacles grazing, filtering, shifting. To the north of the reef, across the narrow entrance to the bay, the headland is half-shrouded in haze, Gannets pass, one drops and plunges into the sea. It's going to be a hot day. The man has driven four hours of the night to get here. Before that, he tossed and turned in a reclining seat on the night ferry. Right now, he believes he's been travelling towards here his whole life. A heron is standing sentry at the edge of the second pool. She hasn't seen the man and panics when he passes behind her rising up croaking like a witch, working the slow gain of her big wings, the badly folded neck and legs. The third pool is so beautifully still that it gives the man an ache. He strips down, stands looking at it for a long time. He closes his eyes. The retina still holds an afterburn of fluorescent lighting, stressed people in suits, tense, pale faces. He can hear and smell angry city traffic, see the black motes of tyre rubber on a window ledge. He opens his eyes again, feels grey, exhausted. He steps towards the edge. The pool is crystal clear, a borrowed pocket of Atlantic. In here, he will immerse everything. The low sun, rising now behind the distant houses, casts long shadows across the stand as in across the strand as in a dream and for a moment he's not sure if this is real. He grips his toes and the sharp barnacles at the edge of the pool, leans forward, arms above his head. He's in mid-air. Marco Rin there, reading from his new book, The Last of the Light. And I, and I really get the sense, it's, it's one of the things that I, I, I was interested in, in in the reading of the book, Mark, is where where, where fiction and reality kind of lie yeah. in in this book you know I, I say that there are short stories within it but they all feel so in, incredibly real uh, and yet even in that passage that you read for us we yeah. get a sense that reality is in a kind of a suspended state yeah. in, a, across some of the pieces that you're writing what for you is the relationship between fact fiction reality in in the book yeah yeah i i like that uh i like that 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 the fact that they are intermingled and and kind of um they they feed off each other because there are elements of it that that are straight memoir i would mm. say the london pieces are straight memoir uh there are elements of it that are uh 
fiction, but I would call them fictive uh, more so, as in I, I've taken real situations and real experience and um, I suppose um, dramatised them or fictionalised yeah. them a bit. So I, I am playing with real stuff as much as possible. Uh, but... Um, you know, I, I am uh, I am more interested in creating a story, or I suppose creating an art. I suppose without being too fancy or highfalutin about it. But I, I wanted it to have. Uh, I wanted it, I wanted there to be a narrative. I wanted to have a sense of narrative completeness uh, yeah. on finishing the book, and I wanted the individual pieces to stand alone as well. So it was a balancing act, Sean. To be honest, uh, yeah. So yeah. If, if if I'm thinking of a story like there's a story in here in, in the in the collect or in the book called In Sexton's Field, yes. which is kind of about three young boys, yeah. three young brothers, being brought out to shoot mallards. By, the, yeah. by their father so yeah, yeah. was there a real situation that oh, kind of absolutely. fired that off oh yeah absolutely I mean we would have we would have uh, been uh, raised <laughs> out hunt, mm. hunting duck night, night flighting was a great term for it locally uh, night flighting so we went out to night flight in the the fading twilights of uh, many's a winter evening like the, like this evening uh, and uh, it was fantastic I mean it was a great um, experience uh, looking back on it of course at the time you're you're miserable sitting in, <laughs> sitting in a hole why am I being brought out <laughs> exactly. here to do this with freezing water running in the back of your Wellingtons going what am I doing <laughs> but looking back at it it was glorious yeah. and uh, that, that fed my imagination and um, yeah at that particular time uh, would you believe um, I had written the inner story about the boys going hunting and, and shooting but uh, uh, it came to me uh, how wonderful it would be to use it as uh, uh, in the middle of a story and um at that time, I, I use it. I tell. I use it as a brother telling the story to the narrator. Uh, yeah. At that time, it's quasi real, I suppose, and quasi fictional because at that point, uh, my brother Hopper, he had been so he was suffering uh, from uh, bipolar. As I say, he struggled with it, but he would he would have gone into a psychiatric hospital a few times, and he he would have been. Um, you know, an, yeah. an inpatient, and uh, but it was actually written before he ever reached that stage. Uh, it was actually after visiting a friend of mine who had been in in uh, in psychiatric hospital that I kind of said, "Okay, Hopper will probably yeah. end up here." And and uh, the fictional story came to me. Yeah, in some yeah. ways, life imitating art. Exactly, exactly. This is it. Yeah. Maybe a year later, he yeah. he did end up there. You know. And the other thing that that story. <laughs> <laughs> the minute, the minute now, and we don't spend all of the time in and around Loophead. Yeah. We don't go too far. Or we don't. We do go far away, but we don't yeah. go far away for too long. Yeah. Uh, uh, poor old London. It doesn't sound as if those were the happiest uh, times for uh, your narrator, <laughs> i.e., you, Mark. Well, yeah. I, I, you know, I actually had a great time there, but um, I suppose I picked out the worst elements for it uh, to contrast it with the the Loophead. Of course, you know, I, I'm mm. being there's poetic license probably being uh, misu misused <laughs> I'm misusing my license but um, yeah I, I wanted to contrast this with uh, the loop uh, loop head and what I was coming back to and, and I suppose showed a darker uh, yeah. more miserable lonesome parts of it uh, people, some people wished I'd written more about the London parts they loved the they loved the uh, the, the rawness or the greyness of the prose I suppose or the, the starkness yeah, of yeah, it there, there is a difference but certainly in, almost in style between the two sections but finally Mark I mean, across the book, 
there are broken people in here and I know you've touched yes. on, on on Hopper in that respect and indeed the fictive, the fictional side of it or other friends where you had seen this type of thing happening. Yes. Is it too simplistic to think uh, of, you know, the natural world and the beautiful way you described that as we heard there, the man in, in, in mid-air mm. on that dead quiet of summer morning, 5.30am in, in the in mid-air section. Is it too simplistic to think of nature as the great healer or in fact are you, are you kind of saying it, that's not enough. Uh, I'm definitely saying it's it's a major uh, for me anyway. Maybe not for everyone, but for me, it's it's uh, it's bringing you right back to basics. It's bringing you right back to uh, your 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 real utter self because we, we are nature too, and we are you know maybe the part of nature that thinks about itself. <laughs> you know, without going too deep. Mm. But uh, yeah, definitely, and and again. I think uh, we as a family and certainly us, us younger brothers, uh, uh, we would have identified so much with, with the natural world and, and were raised in it and had a great feel for it. So for me, yeah, definitely it was very healing. And um, and through it, I, I feel connected to uh, those that I've lost, you know, all, all, all my, my family yeah. and uh, friends. And um, certainly my brother Hopper was so closely identified with the Lupet Peninsula that, uh, you know, writing about it is, in a way he was at my shoulder for all of us and um, as I say influenced quite a lot of us Yeah well there's a, there's a beautiful piece section where you talk about uh, being connected to those who have gone before which I thought was um, yeah. very apt and, and very beautiful Lovely Thanks. to have spoken with you Mark and congratulations on the book Thanks for being with us this evening Thank you very much Sean That's Mark O'Rain and The Last of the Light is published by Barnock Publications The Dublin-born visual artist Stephen Lawler is an enthusiastic student of art history. His paintings are in constant dialogue with works of his artistic ancestors. And this latest show at the Oliver Sears Gallery continues this deep exploration of famous masterworks on this occasion, predominantly from Italian painters. In engaging with these older works now in the 21st century, Lawler gives us new images that bear only a fleeting resemblance to the originals, but which recall the past as if looking back through a somehow refracted lens. Stephen show The Sublime Divine, opens at the Oliver Sears Gallery in Dublin tomorrow, and he joins me now. And I should say, Stephen, that you've, you've kindly given us permission to tweet some images of your own works as we discuss them, and we'll do that on at RTE Arena for those who, who want to see those images on, on Twitter. And indeed, we will tweet images of some of the, if you like, the works that are inspired or that you're reacting to in your works uh, in, in this exhibition as well, Stephen. The paintings in, in this new exhibition, The Sublime Divine, are based on a very specific period of religious uh, paintings. What period are we talking about and what was it about that period that kind of spoke to you at this moment in time, Stephen? Well, uh, uh, good evening, Sean. Uh, I I suppose drifted into it as one does when you're working away and you're not quite realising why or how you're choosing specific images. But when I looked back through them and, and uh, you know, looked at the dates and how they all connected, uh, there is the Northern European uh, Renaissance, obviously, too. And at an earlier point in time, a lot of those paintings were quite stiff and formal compared to the, the you know, the, the High Renaissance. So, that's where I ended up, and that's what these paintings are reflective of. They're not sort of very famous painters. Most of them are kind of, you know, uh, se- you know, uh, se- mm. second line painters, but they're still fantastic, uh, wonderful painters. And I got sucked into them many years ago. 
Well, let, let's look at the specifics of one of the paintings that sucked you in then, I, I guess. And we yeah. might just talk about it, first of all, and then about the, how your work reacted to, to it. So I'll tweet sure. um, I'll tweet the old masterwork, first of all, the conversion of St. Paul. This is a Jean Mostert from 1500 is, is the painting that we're looking at now. Um, a fairly standard kind of religious painting of the time in some ways to my eyes Stephen with you know St. Paul looking up into the to the sky and seeing an image up there and obviously this is a this is the he suddenly sees he, he suddenly gets the flash of conversion heading his way what struck you about this painting? Um, well it, it, as with all of them there's a sort of a slight anxious, anxiousness or tension in them drama it is the drama really mm. impending tragedy you know, so really, when you're when you see these these masters struggling with perspective, as in this early time they were, um, it's still fantastical. You know, they're they're not painting landscapes per se. So when I um, go look at them and then try and put them down, it generally ends up as a total mess. But I just work on top of that again with perhaps another version or a similar mm. version, uh, wet on wet, and it it then starts something starts to emerge and. Uh, when you look at the original, and as you as you've just put up on Twitter there, uh, and the my own painting, sometimes they resemble each other quite closely, yeah. and other times they are miles apart. But well, that let's, is, let's let's know, let's tweet yours yours right now. So we'll tweet yours, which is yeah. simply called Damascus. This is the Stephen Lawler work, which is that's right. Do you think of it as a reaction to the 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 uh, must art work, or what way do you think of that, Stephen? Um. I think of it as an engagement with it. You know, you're, I suppose you're trying to capture or, uh, you know, reminisce upon or, or really suck the marrow out of, if I can be crude about it, um, <laughs> and make them, make them feel exciting, as exciting as they were to the mm. people who saw them in the, in the time they were painted. So there is that sort of strange, uh, you know, 14th century feel to them, even though they are, they are almost abstract paintings. Um, and, and that sort of borders, that hovering point between um, figuration and abstraction, I, I'm just very happy to, to, uh, to be in. I mean, Damascus, you know, Damascus today is as it was then, St. Yeah. Paul, Paul on the road, a Roman officer who's gone out to persecute the Christians and ends up, you know, the Lord coming down and flinging him off his horse. Um, things haven't changed much out there, sadly. <laughs> But yeah. um, that painting is around 120 by 150 centimeters, uh, so it's quite a big painting. Mm. But um, yeah, uh, so I, you struggle with them, and I suppose they they are almost a performance when you're making them. Yeah, but I just do change just, them quite quite quickly. Yeah, yeah, just describe a little bit more. You, you you touched on it earlier there about the actual process of doing this. Is the starting point to make some kind of reproduction or copy in some ways of the original painting? Is that the starting point Not, for you? No, it, certainly yes, the starting point. But you know, you you paint them, and then and when I say paint over them, I mean literally paint yeah. another painting on top of that painting, very quickly within an hour. Yeah, uh, so you you wet on wet is what yeah. you're talking about here. Exactly. And it's acrylic on aluminium, which has been primed several times. So it's a very smooth surface, and uh, the color sort of glows through through you know layers upon layers of color so i am a printmaker as well so i know how those layers work mm. but um so yeah so so your your question sorry Sean again was what uh, no it was just to, to talk a little me. bit more about that about that process but you've done it there you're saying that it's it's not an exact copy that you're you're not no and it, and it can't be and it no. ends up sometimes miles away but i suppose it's an emotional 
what comes off it is this emotional thing of exactly what was happening at the time, even though that you know it's it's not figurative. It, you mm. can see forms and figures moving about within the space. You can see a foreground that you know yeah. alluded to as a middle ground and a background. So, yeah, I'm I, I'm very happy when you know when you can sort of think that you can see the world through the eyes of somebody who 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 put it something together 500 years ago. Except. Yeah. That's not what it is. Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. But what I find very interesting, because I'm doing this here as I'm speaking to you, is that I have yeah. I have your painting opened on one tab, and I have the mm. the the old masterwork on another, and flicking yeah. between the two of them. Yeah, they're clearly not the same painting, but you can kind of see be. you can see relationships between them that are very very interesting. Did you, as, as you painted, would you have the old masterwork? You know, as a copy of it sitting in front of you, or how do you go about that aspect of things? Yes, I will. Yeah, I wouldn't have a copy of it. I have it mm. on a big screen. Where, All right. And so when it when it's on a screen, it's glowing, of course, because the, you know the 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 light behind it is lit. You know, unlike a printed thing. So that's where I would start, but. You know, um, I, I do. I, if it if it were just a simple matter of making a copy, well, then what are you doing? What's the point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what I'm doing is is when I say paint over over one over the other, I mean seven different images on top of on top of each other. So therefore, you, you're you're totally lost control of what you're trying to do, and and suddenly something emerges, and so you know forms merge with their background, objects merge with each other. And then you have a very fluid thing happening, and you're right there in that moment. And something, for me anyway, happens and and and, and works, you know. Um, so I'm 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 very proud. And I must thank, if I may, thank the Oliver Sears Gallery for hosting this. They've been great mm. to work with over many years. I find them wonderful. So I have to say that. Let Let's tweet a, a, another image then. And again, mm. uh, will we go? We'll go the other direction this time. We'll tweet yours no. first. In in the interests okay. of equality, sure. we will treat sure, we'll, sure. We'll, we'll treat yours first here, and this is Dusseldorf yeah. fifteen sixty again acrylic uh, on aluminium, and uh, we're talking about twenty five by thirty five centimeters is the size is the size that we're yeah. talking about in this particular yeah. case. Now, wh- when you look at this painting in or when I look at it in isolations, yeah. I'm immediately looking at color, shape, form, the the possibility of a foreground, a background, and a, and a middle ground. Uh, but yes. but I I I kind of I'm getting a feeling off it more than anything else at RTE Arena. By the way, if you want to look at at the, the, the we're looking at the Stephen uh, Lawler version or the Stephen Lawler painting, uh, Dusseldorf yes. uh, at, at this point in time. Um, is is it an emotion that you're trying to bring out for us here, Stephen, or what's in your mind? Yeah, I I think yes. To answer the the question bluntly, yes. It is, and 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 so really, uh, if if one can sort of, I won't say trap, but let us say, how can I how can I put it mm. to uh, instill within the work something you can feel what's there, but but you cannot really get to grips with it at all. It slips it slips off, you know, it slips off your consciousness in that every time you see it, it looks like something different. It's odd, and you start seeing other things within it. Um, this one uh, it is called Dusseldorf, but is based on the flight into yeah. Egypt by a Dutch painter. Um, uh, made in fourteen and sorry, fifteen, fifteen, fifteen. Yeah. I think, yeah. But you know, you kind of taking the forms and the figures as they work together. That these two are fleeing from, as we know, what is the name? Herod, yeah. who's who's hunting them. So many master painters painted that same scene over many centuries, and I mean thousands of yeah. them. 
So there are absolutely incredible versions. There are terrible versions and there are all kinds of versions. But it's the same, that same feeling of, 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 uh, of being hunted, of being refugees sort of permeates through all of them, yeah. whether they're the best or the worst. And I would, as I say, engage with, with four or five of them you know, in, one, in one session. I ended up with this one. I don't know why. I, I like the stiffness of it. Sometimes bad paintings are not that bad. There are things within them that work. As a whole, they may not. But I, I'm looking at them so long now. I become intimately sort of, you know, um, uh, what's it called? You know, familiar with them. So uh, in that respect, I, I paint again and again the same images yeah. sometimes, again and again, different versions of them. But yes, I, I, I like to think if the viewer sees them, they can they get this sense of something tragic happening, but they can't quite put their finger on it. Well, and interesting. Then, if, know, if I'll, 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 I'll tweet now the the mm. Jan Wellens de Kock, the, the 1560 painting, the old masterwork, yes. the flight into Egypt. Yeah. Uh, and, yes. and as you say, we, we see the three figures here, um, two women, uh, one woman uh, who... It looks as if she's going to run out that gate and head, uh, or at least she's she's <laughs> greeting she's greeting um, the, the Mary Joseph and the little baby on the two donkeys as they're fleeing. I guess uh, she's on, yeah. Mary's on the donkey and Joseph walking along alongside. They're fleeing. Yeah, yeah. And the stories are all these people, all these objects, the geese in the foreground and the birds in the background. They're, they're all part of the um, iconography, so they they do mean something. That woman's trying to help them. The soldiers in the background are looking for them. Yeah. So. You always see these objects or scenes within each of those each of those paintings. And interestingly, I mean, when when I look at again, I'm flicking back and forth here. When I look at yours, and my initial yeah. impression of yours was this this swirling type of not quite chaos, but you you know yeah. that there's a kind of energy of disturbance involved here. This is not a. I'm not yes. looking at a calm abstract, if you like. I'm looking at a a, 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 a slightly agitated abstract when I look at yours. Yes. Uh, yes. Can you think of that at the point of making it or is that, do you look afterwards and say that's what I was looking for, I've got it now, leave it alone. Yeah, at the point of making it really is where everything happens and if it doesn't happen you know, I certainly would leave them aside and rework mm. and rework and slowly you start knowing or feeling what what exactly is wrong or why it may not be working. But um, certainly the, the intu intuition and, and, and you know, pa painting in that moment, um, so much happens where you, I suppose you're, you're mm. no longer planning. You're no longer thinking of what you're trying to do. You're feeling your way through it. Yeah, yeah I think and you talk about you, you talk about a relaxed fluidity. What does that mean? Yeah, it, it means it means not trying not to think while you're doing it, I suppose. And and so, so so as colors and forms merge into each other, not to get not to get the less you worry about um, breaking mm. across those borders of of density in terms of what's in the foreground or what's in the middle ground or background or should be. Once they start merging, things start happening. Things start coming forward. Things start receding, and that's the whole the whole yeah. struggles. Uh, therefore, you're. If it doesn't happen within that moment, as I say, I set it aside. But you can sense when something is working or almost there. Yeah. It's never what you're looking for. And that's actually probably the best thing yeah. because what, what comes out in the end is something entirely yeah. unexpected. Yeah, and probably if you're looking for something, it'll, 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 it won't come to you. <laughs> it'll say, I'm not coming to you. You're looking too <laughs> well, hard for me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. So, so well, it's a process and a way oh. and a way of working. My own process. Yeah. Well, luckily, lovely, lovely to speak with you this evening and to share those images, Stephen. Thanks for being with us. That's Stephen Lawler and Stephen's new exhibition, The Sublime Divine, opens tomorrow at the Oliver Sears Gallery in Dublin. Will be on view there until January the twenty seventh.